Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. We have a special guest today, and I am really excited about this conversation. His name is Associate Professor Nicholas Van Dam. He's a highly regarded global leader in contemplative research and practice at the University of Melbourne, and he's got a strong commitment to interdisciplinary dialogue and empirical rigour. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to his extensive experience around the world in this space, and I hope you really enjoy it. His research explores the ways that meditation and mindfulness practices can support well-being, and really he's um, interested, like our audience, on a better understanding of the human condition and the simple things we can do or not do to improve the human condition. He completed a PhD in clinical psychology in the University of Albany in the USA, and he also worked at NYU and at the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research and the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So he comes with a lot of experience and he's joining us today from the University of Melbourne. So Nick, would you like to introduce yourself and thank you for giving us your time? Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. So would you like to tell the audience a little bit about you? Sure, so um, I'm originally from the US. I grew up in um, Wisconsin. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Wisconsin, and um, I, I was there right around the same time that um, Richard Davidson was Time Magazine's Person of the Year. So I sort of got interested in mindfulness a little bit um, as a function of sort of being exposed uh, directly to, to Richie Davidson's work and, and hearing about it at that point. Um, I went to uh, medical school straight out of undergraduate. Um, and I dropped out after about two thirds of a year, uh, just because I didn't enjoy it, uh, in the way that I thought I would. Um, and I took a bit of time off and I worked as an RA in a, um, in a acute, uh, drug administration lab at the university of Chicago. Uh, and then I pursued a PhD in clinical psychology, focusing on mindfulness and meditation as interventions for mixed anxiety and depression. Uh, and subsequent to that, I spent a lot of time learning about psychiatric neuroimaging, um, in New York City and um, continued on that trend for a while before um, starting to shift my work back into um, into sort of thinking about mindfulness and meditation. And I learned quite a bit about sort of computational modeling and thinking about um, how people make decisions as well along the way. Um, and, and when I got to the University of Melbourne, sort of really started to focus quite a lot more on, on mindfulness and meditation and, and what we know about it and what we don't and what we should do potentially going forward. Yes, so I think because we don't have a lot of time with you because you've got uh, you're really busy but for the time we have I think the audience would be because it may call the thriving minds podcast there's so much as we've discussed before this about the benefits of mindfulness and meditation it's a, it's really an explosion in the world I, uh, and you and I talked a little bit about this it's amazing to think how something can exponentially increase like that compared to say other practices like exercise and diet for example so I think for the audience sake we want to go straight to I think everyone's heard about the benefits of mindfulness and meditation they may not realize who Richard Davidson is I mean I've talked about it a bit um, so just you might want to tell the audience a little bit about him and then maybe if you could just explore a little bit for the audience what you've come to learn about how it exploded in terms of um, people seeing the benefits of mindfulness and meditation Sure. So um, just by way of kind of background, Richard Davidson is one of the kind of leading figures of particularly the neuroscience of meditation. Um, and he's close friends with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, and he was really fundamental in kind of, I guess, making 
the research and the academic work around meditation really popular in in, in the Western world and um, and and kind of really helped to push um, the envelope a bit and sort of make it something that was reasonably well accepted within the scientific community and um, he's led a lot of work on neuroplasticity which sort of has to do with you know how the brain can adapt and is flexible um, and really kind of has held up as sort of a figurehead of someone who really um, you know kind of has paved the way in terms of studying mindfulness or meditation um, so so that should give some insight as to why sort of you know uh, Richard Davidson sort of is is such a potentially sort of charismatic and influential figure and so certainly stands out in my mind sort of early in my career um, so I, I got involved um, with with the organization Mind and Life, which was co-founded by um, a, a neuroscientist who passed away named Frisco, Francisco Varela and His Holiness the Dalai Lama um, when I was in graduate school. And so I attended a number of events that they hosted. Um, and the, the goal of these events is often have to, to have discussions amongst various meditation practitioners, as well as scientists, um, artists, writers, um, you know, monks, nuns, um, priests, lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. And, you know, it all seemed really exciting, interesting, wonderful. And I guess a number of conversations started up along the sidelines between myself and a number of colleagues, um, really um, going back to sort of some of my first days with the organization, sort of around 2007, 2008. Um, and, and these conversations really were around the idea that um, there's a lot that mindfulness and meditation can do to help people, but there's also um, limitations to that, and there's also some risks for certain people. Um, and so that's kind of really for me where where some of these, uh, some concerns sort of started to come up, and, and some of the things that I think the general public is not always as aware of that, you know, as you said, lots of people have heard about all the wonderful things that mindfulness and meditation can do, but not as many people have heard of the, the, the sort of potential harms that it might do. Um, and so there's been work in recent years starting to explore um, not just how it can go well and how it can help everyone, but sort of what, what, what things could go wrong. Um, and I think particularly of note, there's been some studies done in recent years that suggest that roughly about 8% of people who undertake meditation can experience adverse events. And an adverse event is something that is not desirable um, and it's unexpected. Um, and it's not something that really is meant to happen. So it, it, the, the, the most common forms of these events are people can become very anxious or quite depressed while they're meditating. And, and that those experiences can last kind of well beyond the period of meditation. So it's not just that the, the, the meditation practice itself is quite intense. It's actually that they can become very anxious or depressed and that can last for long periods of time afterwards. Um, in, in, in very extreme cases, um, we see evidence of things like psychotic breaks. So people, you know, really uh, having hallucinations or or feeling like they're seeing visions. Um, people can lose their sense of their self, so they can experience what we call um, depersonalization or dissociative episodes where they feel disconnected from themselves or their body. Um, and we can also see sort of increases or enhancements in things like suicidality. So I think it's really important that people are aware that these things do exist. As I said, you know, the, the frequency of them is about 8%. So they're not massively common. Um, adverse events in the context of, say, standard psychotherapy is on the order of 5%. So, you know, we're not talking about something that is totally unexpected or, or totally out of the sort of the playbook of what happens when you're working with people in particular contexts. But most people just assume, you know, mindfulness and meditation um, the worst 
that could happen sort of is you might not enjoy it. And the reality sort of is the worst that could happen actually is quite a bit worse. Um, um, in terms of sort of when these things happen and how they happen, they're most common in intensive meditation retreats. So people sort of that go off and do 10 day silent retreats um, and things of that sort, that, that's when they're most likely to happen. They're probably much less likely to happen in sort of day to day practice or sort of sitting down and you know using an app for, for 10 minutes or something like that. But there are documented records or evidence of people having adverse experiences, even in those circumstances, you know, with using, say, the Muse app, you know, with the headband or um, and using other apps or, you know, just practicing on their own at home. So it's not like it doesn't happen. It's just it's much less likely to happen. So can you speak to because you're a clinical psychologist and you see patients and um, I guess the piece that we'd like to kind of talk about here is you, you were talking to me about how it's contraindicated for some people to do meditation. And, and, and so this goes back to when you have an antidepressant, you see a doctor, for example, and we talked a little mm -hmm. bit about that. So it's having a therapeutic person for certain people that are undergoing meditation and mindfulness. Yeah. So look, it's, it's, I mean, kind of the way that it's promoted and talked about is kind of that, you know, it, it's something that everyone should do and kind of what, you know, you often read about sort of in popular magazines is that everybody should be doing some amount of mindfulness in some way, you know, in that some aspect of their lives and it's wonderful and helpful and, um, you know, nothing bad will come of it. Um, the reality sort of is that in particularly sort of in the early introductions of formal mindfulness programs, and I'm thinking in particular of the mindfulness-based stress reduction program. So that was one of the really, uh, the first introductions kind of of a formal program for training meditation, particularly in the medical context. Um, and that was introduced in the late 80s and it really kind of gained some popularity in, in the 1990s, particularly in the US. Um, it's interesting to note that, that the manual that, that, this is at the University of Massachusetts, um, that the manual that they used around who was eligible to, to enroll in that initially precluded or said that nobody with any kind of psychiatric disorder or condition was actually eligible unless they had been cleared by their physician. So really from, from the get-go, they essentially, the, the, the idea was that anybody who had any kind of psychiatric condition should not be doing this. So now, obviously that's not like how it's presented. Is that like depression, anxiety, pain kind of thing? or? Yeah, it, so it ranges from, you know, so it's sort of this, this very severe forms of mental illness from things like schizophrenia, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but all the way to sort of the more mild forms of, of or what we think of more as more common forms of mental disorders like anxiety or depression, right? So it's really the whole gamut. Um, now, what we've since learned um, is that through a lot of randomized control trials is that um, program structured programs like mindfulness-based stress reduction can be quite helpful for people with things like anxiety and depression for these more common types of mental disorders, um, but that it is likely to be contraindicated for people with more severe mental disorders. So people with schizophrenia, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, the evidence coming out sort of suggests that it's probably not a good place to start in terms of treatment for them. Right. Um, yeah. and, and the point that I'd made and that you alluded to around, you know, um, how, how ought this to work? How, how should we think about it um, is a really important one because, you know, most times when people are seeking help or support, particularly for mental conditions, they would typically work closely with the clinician and they would sort of get supervision. Um, and it varies to a great extent, I guess, when people are learning mindfulness or meditation, whether the person that they're learning 
that practice from has any background or training in psychology or psychiatry. So sometimes they do. Sometimes they might be a psychologist or psychiatrist. Sometimes they may be a meditation teacher who is, is quite aware of um, mental health issues. Sometimes they might be you know, a, a therapist or social worker who is aware of those issues. But sometimes you get people teaching these programs who really don't have that background. Um, and that can really be uh, difficult in the sense that if someone is having mental health related issues, um, they may not necessarily know how to manage it or deal with it. Um, and so, so that's something that I think is really important to consider in the context of mindfulness and meditation is the, that we don't, um, globally, there sort of isn't particularly strong regulation around who's allowed to sort of teach meditation. There aren't sort of an established set of standards as to sort of who is the, the person that can go out and do this. Yeah. And I think that from, from my perspective, that was quite surprising to me, which is, and I came across you because I found your paper called Mind the Hype. Uh, you and another and a large number of authors on that um, paper it was really well written and and it made me really stop and think which is how we connected so thank you for that great paper these thick papers are not easy to write or to get published um, because it's hard to go up against I mean this is a, you know people are making a lot of money in these spaces now um, so my big question to you is about kids um, because uh, like with drugs and everything, uh, we tend to prescribe things to kids as if they're little, adult, they're little adults. And there's my big concern, and I'd like you to talk to me th about this, is there's a huge amount of effort now putting mindfulness into schools and, and even really young children under five where their brains are incredibly plastic. What's your take on what we should do in these spaces? Because obviously there's probably some use but I really worry about um, the benefits of mindfulness for some kids when they would be better off playing out in the sandpit, for example, or climbing trees, which has kind of been taken out in replace of mindfulness, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And look, I think that that's a really important point, which is that, um, so, I mean, we know a decent amount about mindfulness and meditation for adults. I mean, I think even the evidence there is not necessarily bulletproof. So some colleagues of mine sort of have compared mindfulness-based programs to other active lifestyle changes. And the reality sort of is that even in adults, um, mindfulness-based programs don't necessarily beat other active lifestyle change programs. So, you know, it may be good, and particularly if it's something you're keen to do, it may be helpful as an adult. Um, but, you know, if you're equally, you know, more eager or to sort of go out and exercise um, or, you know, learn to tango or something like that, that those kinds of things may be just as beneficial. Um, now, the, the evidence with respect to kids, I think, is even more lacking. We don't know very much at all about sort of to, to what extent mindfulness or meditation is beneficial for kids. And I think, as you pointed out, one of the big concerns is that the way that we teach mindfulness or meditation to adults is, doesn't work for kids. You know, when we tell people to sit quietly and focus on their breath, that's not something that most children can do. And so, one of the concerns I have is sort of that when these programs are adapted or utilized with, with particularly young children, they're often not adapted enough. Um, young children really need a lot of props, examples, clear depictions of what it is they're doing. Um, they certainly don't have the kinds of attention spans. I mean, arguably not all adults have the attention spans to sit and focus on the breath for 20, 30 minutes either. But particularly when you're talking about very young children, you know, they're not going to be able to focus on the breath and sort of really understand what it is you're trying to get them to do, particularly if you're talking about five or six year olds. Um, 
many of the programs that are in schools, um, this is true globally, but also particularly in Australia, have not been rigorously evaluated. Um, many of them, there's been many pilot studies exploring whether or not they may work. Um, there haven't been a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons. So the idea being, traditionally what you would do is you would say, we take a program that we know will have benefits for children, and then we would compare this new program and see whether or not it works comparably well or better. And we right. don't, we have very few, if any of those kinds of studies. Um, so, so my general position, and, and this is based partially on what I know about the evidence, but also based on the fact that I'm a parent, I have a six-year-old son, yeah. uh -huh. is that I don't think that we should be implementing mindfulness in schools in the way that we are doing it. Right. I don't think that we should completely take it out, um, but I think that we basically should be giving the children and the teachers options. So we should be giving them a space to implement um, various activities. So if the children want to just have a walk outside, yeah. if they uh -huh. want to play a game with their friends, um, you know, if they just want to sit quietly for a little while and relax, if they want to just look up at the sky um, and look at clouds, whatever, um, you know, or if they want to meditate or they want to engage in mindfulness activities, great. And I think that to me, that's the real point is that given that we don't have the evidence to suggest that mindfulness or meditation is better than these other things, we're in no position to sort of recommend that it be used over these other things. And, so I think at the end of the day, what we have to do right now is we have to say, look, if we don't have the evidence, we shouldn't be replacing things that we know work. We shouldn't be taking away recess or other activities in, in favor of mindfulness. And if we're going to offer these kinds of things, we need to offer children and teachers options. We need to give them the opportunity to say, if you'd like to engage in mindfulness or meditation, you can, but if you'd prefer to do something else, you're also welcome to do that. So that brings me to, that's almost like learning a language, like if you want to learn French, you go to an extracurricular class to learn French, for example. So it's very structured, very, you're making a choice and a volunteer activity because, so I, this brings me to, um, I, I'm, I don't know if you listened to Andrew Huberman's neuroscience podcast out of Stanford, and it's, it's really excellent. And he talks a lot about play and how there's, and goes through all the research evidence demonstrating the actual huge benefit to brain, to brain function around play, not just in children, but in adults for our, over a lifespan in terms of cognitive flexibility, social connection, and he talks about all the brain regions that are activated. So I guess the key here for people listening, because we have teachers and education specialists on this podcast too, is and it's so vitally important that at least at the minimum, we do no harm. Yeah. Like, and there's some significant studies coming out of the US showing that the race to early education, pre-K pre across um, a state in the US actually caused the kids to read worse and do maths worse by year three and year six using a really structured program, you know? So I, this conversation I think is really important and vital right now as people are really starting to look at how to do this at a state countrywide level. And yeah, absolutely. Look, and I think I mean, that's so important think... that we have this conversation about play. <laughs> And mindfulness and meditation, I think if done well, I mean, really to my mind, they, they are kind of like a form of play, you know, like it, it is exploring or playing with different ideas or exploring um, different ways of engaging with the world. But I don't think sort of that you can force people or you should force people to sort of use mindfulness instead of other ways of playing. And I think the point that you're alluding to is, you know, for many children, it's incredibly hard to sit down in their seats for multiple hours at a time in a given day. And that's something we sort of, we almost try train play out of people in our society. Mm -hmm. You know, we train people not to be playful. Um, we kind of force them to sit and stare at a computer or stare at a, at a, at a wall for multiple hours in a day. And, and, and I think by doing so, we're actually, we're, we're um, 
diminishing people's sort of cognitive flexibility. We're diminishing the, the sort of creative spirit that people have in certain ways or their ability to think outside the box. And that can have detrimental consequences. So I, I agree. I think it's incredibly important that not only we continue to encourage children to play, but also that we encourage adults to be playful as well and to yeah. play with ideas and to, to find ways of playing and interacting with each other um, that aren't always serious. Because I think sort of taking ourselves too seriously is never a good thing. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing he talked about, because he's a visual neuroscientist and my, he's you know, studying the mind-body interaction as well. And the other thing he talked about, which is really interesting, is just how panoramic, like when we are sitting at a desk watching a computer, we go into a narrow tunnel vision and that to deactivate the autonomic nervous system, you actually need to have panoramic vision, which is why playing outdoors in nature or any of us going outside in nature is so powerfully relaxing for most of us without even trying just by utilizing our visual system so I think this evidence and these and the update of science um, is allowing us to bring go back to the basics of the 1950s no uh, you know what I mean like some I, I just think about these things are so important that we don't do things that take out things that are actually working because we yeah, see them I mean, as, as irrelevant sort of... or, or wasting kids' time when it's actually building their brain function, executive function, and so many important things for learning. Yeah, I think there's there's sort of this assumption, right, that we just have to pack more and more and more into people's yeah. days, and particularly kids and at yes. school. And we think yeah. about just, you know, we need to we need to get them to memorize as much as possible so that they're ready for their life. But the reality sort of is, you know, we're, we're very well adapted to actually prepare for life. And so kids kind of are already doing a lot of things in the way that... Um, that, that will prepare them quite well. And, you know, when you think about the qualities that mindfulness is trying to create, um, most kids already have them. You know, this, well, there's the this do. idea of beginner's <laughs> mind, which is coming to something with fresh eyes. Um, and, you know, the ability to think flexibly, flexibly about different ideas or the idea sort of just be really open-minded and curious. I mean, these are all qualities that most kids already have in spades. And so, you know, in, in many ways, kind of just letting kids giving them the space to do what it is they do, which is to play and be in the world and explore and use their imaginations. Um, in many ways, that's already going to foster and facilitate many of these qualities. So I think the idea of sort of substituting, say, a formal class where they'd have to sit and learn about something like mindfulness and, and taking away opportunities for them to play outside and run around and use their imaginations, I feel like that's really counterproductive. It is, yeah. That's what I think too. And I think the more we move, the better because we are based from animals. But anyway, that's just another discussion. Um, I'm really interested in your own research, of course, around decision-making processes in, in psychiatry and psychology. And would you like to step us through what you're currently really excited about in terms of what you see as potential for transforming our understanding of these things? Yeah, look, I mean, I got really interested in sort of how people make decisions because, um, you know, ultimately sort of understanding the way that we go about behaving in the world, I think is really important. And ultimately sort of when you think about what's what's wrong or what's bothering people, particularly with mental illness or what, what challenges people face in their life, a lot of it has to do with sort of how they act in the world and how they sort of um, align their actions with the things that they really want to be doing. And so that's why I got really interested in, in decision making. And and there's been, we, we've done quite a bit of interesting work looking at the kinds of pressures or contexts that influence how people make choices. Um, and so so we've done some really interesting work sort of looking at how do we understand that, what, what drives people to make decisions. And, you know, increasingly um, some work with colleagues, we've noticed that 
a lot of people are much more afraid of losing things than they are of gaining things. Mm -hmm. You know, we often talk about risks. You know, people are very, we talk about people as sort of being wary of risks, but the reality is that sort of for most people, they're much more afraid of loss than they are of risks. They don't want to lose things and they act out of sort of a, a protection or a desire to sort of prevent losses. Um, similarly, sort of some of our work in the context of, you know, uh, thinking about or understanding mindfulness and meditation, um, you know, one of our goals there is really to try to understand, well, how does becoming more aware of biases that we might have, of kind of um, the way that we might go about acting in the world sort of on autopilot, so to speak, how, how does that sort of lead us astray? And, and one of the things I think that happens is, you know, when we're operating sort of in that autopilot mode, we're not really thinking about what it is that we want to be doing. So, you know, we might come home at the end of a tough day and we open the fridge and we grab <laughs> a cold beer or, we, you know, we pour a glass of wine and, and we're just not thinking, you know, we're, we're sort of doing what seems right at the time. And that kind of process of just going, well, it's just an ingrained habit. You know, we kind of take ourselves and our intentions out of the equation. And so one of the things that excites me and one of the possibilities I think about mindfulness and meditation, if done well, is it creates an enhanced awareness. And so and I'm not saying people shouldn't grab that beer or have that glass of wine. It's more about sort of making the decision. So you come home, you walk in the door and you think, oh, I'm about to pour a glass of wine or I'm about to reach for a beer. Is that what I actually want to do? And if you do, great, go for it. But if you think, oh, you know what? Maybe tonight I'm not gonna have a beer or I'm not gonna have that glass of wine. Maybe I'm gonna go out back and just you know sit in the in the garden for a little while or whatever it's it's really about having that awareness to make the choice uh, and not just do things kind of out of you know habit patterns or, uh, or kind yeah. of acting the way that we always uh, act I, I have to ask you have you have you seen Aaliyah Crum's um, podcast uh, TED talk around this where she demonstrated no. she demonstrated amazingly so she had an experiment where she had uh, people come into the lab she's in Stanford also uh, she was originally at Harvard and she published this paper where she had the um, people come into a lab. They got to pick a milkshake and the label said, this is really healthy for you. It's got zero calories. And then she had another group um, and then she measured their ghrelin levels, which is ghrelin mm -hmm. is the peptide you can measure for the audience that correlates with calories and it goes down after you eat. And so they had a decrease in ghrelin levels and then she had them Pick a, have another milkshake but this one had a label that's like a magnum label like delicious full of fat lots of calories and their ghrelin's levels went down even further but then she went back and she said to them oh, here's the catch they're actually exactly the same things that you've just had so she was able to demonstrate mindset has an impact yeah. on physiology yeah and she's down done this for stress for exercise she's a performance athlete athlete herself but i just thought that was so interesting and so now the take-home message and and actually andrew huberman interviewed her as well and the take-home message from that from this was like if you're about to eat something healthy it doesn't say you should eat fat it's saying if you're going to eat something healthy make sure you tell yourself that you're eating something really indulgent so that your yeah. ghrelin <laughs> levels go down and so you still you, know, you still feel really full rather than not feeling as full for, or as or as indulged from yeah and i think food. look this is the, the cool thing to me about sort of a lot of the the work in mindfulness and meditation is it really has shown 
um, and Richard Davidson's work sort of has contributed to this quite a lot, you know, the extent to which the way that we think about the world and, and our mindset and sort of, you know, the, the things that we tell ourselves in our head and the stories that we think about ourselves, they have a huge impact um, on our lives in many ways and our bodies, you know, and our brains physically. So, you know, what we're thinking and how we're, we're feeling, all of these things have physical implications for us. And I think, you know, historically, we, we didn't necessarily think that way. We sort of just thought, well, the mind is sort of, you know, kind of independent and, and it doesn't necessarily have an influence in this way. But it, this really just demonstrates in the study you reflected, demonstrates the way in which how you're thinking and how you're approaching the world and how you're engaging with it can have huge impacts at a physiological level on, on what's going on in your body and, and, you know, in your brain and your world. So it's really important to remember those things. I know. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit now about this new center? You're the inaugural director. Um, would you like to tell us how that came about and what the aim of your centre is? Yeah, so really when when we um, approached it, the, the centre was founded in March of um, 2021 um, off the, the back of a very large and very generous philanthropic donation from Mr. Martin Hosking, the former CEO of Redbubble. And it, it the way that it, that it came about was really that um, we started having conversations with him and, and just mentioned the fact that no real center around contemplative studies or contemplative practices quite broadly exists sort of in the Australia um, Australia sort of re you know region. There's really nothing in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and I guess the idea that we really argued was that we didn't want a center for mindfulness. We didn't want a center for meditation. We wanted a center that would allow for an understanding or an exploration of this broad set of practices. So this idea of contemplation came about, which sort of just means, you know, any type of looking inward, any type of looking outward, sort of thoughtfully, um, you know, so it could be meditation, it could be prayer, um, it could be all sorts of things. Um, and, and the goal of the center really is to help the public to have more reliable and accurate information about what these practices are, where they come from, um, how they can get involved with them if they're interested, what they can and cannot do, um, and then really to provide evidence-based guidelines. You know, when we're thinking about using these practices in healthcare, um, when might they work and when are they a bad idea? When we're thinking about using an education, um, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? How do we do that? So many of our goals as a center are to try to create information and provide reliable information for the public, um, but also to help generate these guidelines about what are the types and forms of practices that are out there? Um, who do you go to learn from that, from learn about them? Because there's lots of teachers yeah. all over the place uh -huh. that put their hand up and say they're experts at teaching meditation or yoga or lots of different things. Um, and not all of them sort of are comparably good. Um, and there's lots of online programs and apps that purport to kind of give you the same thing. So, uh, so a really big goal of ours is to try to provide much more reliable, more robust information for, you know, individuals all the way through to governments um, and companies as they make decisions about what they want to do and how they're going to potentially go about implementing various types of contemplative practice, so including prayer and including mindfulness and including meditation. So I assume that you're in this really fortunate position where you can do this in a really unbiased way. So for example, yeah, look that are you allowed to like at, at, as a conclusion paper, and this is just me, nothing to do with you, arguing for this vision of imagine if you just show exercise and play is and jumping in the ocean is far better than any kind of prayer meditation or can you ever go that far <laughs> absolutely and look that's one of the beautiful things of the way that kind of our center came about is that we have no obligations or commitments whatsoever to kind of 
proving or supporting anything. Um, and then in fact, our position is one of just complete and total agnosticism. We're literally right down the middle. You know, I'm, I, I often sort of when I talk to people about the fact that I'm a director of a center that studies these kinds of things, they, they assume that my position is that I'd want everyone to meditate or that I'd want everyone yeah, to sort of learn exactly. mindfulness. Or what and they, the, the, it couldn't be from? further from the truth. My position actually is that I think mindfulness and meditation are wonderful for some people, but I don't think that they're for everyone. And we're in this position as a center because of the way that the gift was given that we can actually just study these things. And really our goal at the end of the day is that we just want to give people the information. So as you said, you know, if what we find out in some of our studies is that a particular app is not helpful for people or a particular practice is not helpful for people, or even, you know, as you, you implied, like even further, if something else is better, you know, if going for a swim in the ocean is, is, is better for you under certain circumstances than meditating or praying, yeah, we can absolutely come out and say that. And we have a commitment to come out and say that. Um, and we want it to be really clear to people that they have choices in, in how they go about pursuing and promoting their well-being and that um, th they should be it, they should be clear and it should be clear to them when mindfulness or meditation might be the thing that science supports greatest. And, it, and we, we sort of are of the really strong opinion that um, people shouldn't just kind of take this on faith or shouldn't just feel like, well, you know, because lots of people tell us how wonderful mindfulness and meditation is, we ought to be doing it. But we really need good, solid evidence that mindfulness or meditation actually is the thing that, that works. And I think this, you know, how you mentioned just earlier, it's very important to think about what you think about. So, for example, mm -hmm. in science um, and the way things get published, it's so easy to set up your hypothesis in a direction that you want to test it so you can get a publication. So this is another thing that really matters for people to understand. And so, you know, you have for you to be non-biased is very difficult. You know, so for, you have to almost have people like you have to take yourself out of the equation sometimes probably even and let people go off and do their hypothesis testing. You know, this is difficult, isn't it, sometimes? Because if you have a set oh. of beliefs about things, it's so hard to, like I know myself, the things that I've had to shift in my own scientific career have been massive and really difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly challenging. And I think, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are really interested in meditation and mindfulness and they've had to, you know, they, they pulled themselves out of the work because they found that the, the evidence they were yeah. occurring sort of conflicted with their own values or beliefs, and it was kind of interfering with their personal lives. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, that it's very hard. Me. And as you said, Absolutely. sort of, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of personal, but there's also a lot of professional vested interest in, in writing a paper that sort of says a particular thing. And so it's a huge challenge. And, and that's been one of our commitments in sort of bringing together people to staff our center is that we want people representing multiple different faiths, multiple different backgrounds, multiple different positions, such that when we design these projects, we've got lots of different eyes looking over what's yeah. happening and making sure that we're actually doing justice to designing experiments well. And we've got a good healthy dose of skepticism thrown into the mix, yeah. really just to ensure sort of that at the end of the day, we're really towing that line of just being as neutral as we possibly can. And for some of our upcoming studies as well, we're planning to, to go even further, which is just to blind ourselves, which is to say, you know, as the experimenters, we'll just do the statistics on group A and group B, and we'll have no idea whether A was the meditation group or the control group, Absolutely. right? So we're really trying to make that effort to say, at the end of the day, we're very aware of how we might influence the results because we're excited about or we want to see particular results. And I think many people in the field 
are not necessarily doing this intentionally. You no, know, they're never. not trying to no. make the results turn out a certain way. But but there's a lot of ways in which people can unconsciously bias results. You know, where yeah. they just they they so strongly feel that this is something that could help people that it's sort of they, they, it can create these subtle tendencies to really push for the way in the way you design your experiments to push for a particular outcome or result. And so, as you say, it's so important to be very careful and very cautious when you design these studies such that you actually get the best possible evidence you can. And, and our position at the center is at the end of the day, whatever that evidence is, we want to share it with the world. You know, mm -hmm. if, if it shows that meditation is helpful, wonderful. If it shows that meditation is not the best thing for certain conditions and certain people, that's okay with us too. We really just want to get the best information that we can. And see, this is the other thing is that you only get published with positive results in good journals. So this is the other, pro this is the pressure on our own scientific process too, you know, so this is something else that needs to be worked on at a systematic level, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. But what I'm interested um, from, because of your world is what do you, what have you come to see after all your travels and study and seeing all of this stuff is the most important issue facing people right now? I think people really, particularly right now, I think people really are sort of struggling with meaning. Um, kind of what, you know, what is it that they want their lives to be about? Um, and how do they sort of go about enacting their lives in a way that sort of aligns with what it is that they, they want it to be about. So I, I think, you know, for so long, sort of we were, we've been encouraged kind of just to keep our heads down and work hard and, you know, kind of to, um, to just do what we had to do to sort of to, to bring income in or to make money. Um, and I think, you know, for, for, for many people, they're fortunate enough to kind of that they can now think beyond that. I mean, there are many, many people around the world that sort of their main objective or obligation really is to make sure they're making ends meet. I mean, we've had all kinds of examples in Australia with flooding, you know, yes. people's houses yeah. being destroyed, that, that where, the, you know, I think it becomes all the more clear um, how difficult it is when your life is upturned and sort of all of those things that we think about sort of, you know, um, practices that we do to further our well-being, you know, they kind of just immediately fall to the wayside because, you know, now you're having to, you know, deal Survive. with the fact that you've lost all of your possessions and you have nowhere to stay. Um, but even in the midst of that, I think people are still thinking about, well, what is this all about? You know, why am I doing this? Um, and I, to, to me, what I think is really important and what I think is really exciting about what we're doing as a center and about meditation is not that it um, commits people to a particular form of meeting, but it allows, particularly forms of meditation, allow people to explore the way in which they're living their lives yeah. and it helps them to sort of consider, am I doing what I actually want to be doing? Am I making choices in a way that sort of actually align with what I want to see my life be? And, you know, to give you examples, um, you know, the, uh, I'm sure you're aware sort of, you know, there's been things like the great resignation going on, you know, <laughs> yeah, particularly well, overseas. That, Australia, we've been a bit spared. universities in Australia right now. Yeah. And so lots of people kind of, I think, have been going, you know, do I really enjoy what I'm doing day to day? And I think the context of, of, of COVID sort of has given us more time to sit and reflect and engage in contemplative acts and sort of to, to understand um, do we like what we're doing? And, um, you know, of course, as an adult, as a grown up, you know, we don't always like what we do, but sort of there is an element of sort of going, you know, is this the best way that I can get where I want to be or get my family where I want them to be or to help my children to get where they want to be? And I think 
there's real opportunity now off the back of everything that's happened with COVID for us to kind of seriously think about that and really think about, well, what are the practices and procedures that we can put in place that give people space and time? Let people play. Let people think creatively. Let people sort of not not make people feel like everything just has to be a straight line, but allow people to take some to, to take some side alleys and to do some exploration and to kind of test out different things before they decide what what it is that they want to do with the rest of their lives. And I think in many ways, that's a wonderful thing. And I really hope to see more of that. And I, I think, as I said, meditation and, and mindfulness, I think is certainly there are sets of practices that can help us to do more of that when used correctly. Yeah. And also on that, um, uh, all that, on that thinking of what other things like just going for a big long hike that you've never done in nature before can do exactly the same thing as well absolutely you yeah. know so you don't have to think that you have to learn something that you don't think you can learn you can simply put on your walking shoes and go and sit absolutely. in some trees that you've never done before you know just around the block it doesn't even have to be out somewhere big it can be just opening your panoramic vision for example to the absolutely world. and like it could it could be as simple as taking a different route home you know, Absolutely. from the grocery store, like just literally <laughs> just explore, you know, like find a different, like find out what else is around you. I think we get so, I mean, the driving thing is one I really like because I think, you know, we often get so stuck on our routines and habits and our world becomes so narrow. And if you just take a different path home, you drive, you, you, t you turn left instead of turning right. And now you get to see a whole different aspect of your neighborhood. And maybe there's a wonderful cafe or maybe there's a little shop there that you really, you know, that you really enjoy. And when we kind of constrain ourselves to just walking a very straight line path, you know, we don't get to explore these things. And as you say, like, it doesn't require meditation or mindfulness to explore these ideas. You know, it could be anything. It's just about having a little bit of willingness to be playful, to get out in the world and sort of be creative and think a little bit outside the box. So can I ask you, what's your life purpose and meaning? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I think I'm still working that out. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. It's sort of, to me, it's very much a day-by-day um, a -day thing. And um you know, I, um, I, it's something that I constantly evaluate. And certainly, I mean, since I had my son, I think things have changed a yes. lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, I would have said it was a lot more about exploration and sort of leaving some kind of mark and making sure that future generations could, could kind of learn from my own mistakes and things like that. Um, and, and now that I have a, a child, sort of, it's much more about <laughs> ensuring that he has what he needs to, to sort of survive and make sense of the world. And um, but I still do have that motivation. <laughs> What's that? And you get enough sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, things certainly change in the context of children, but I still do have the commitment and passion sort of to wanting for other people some of the kinds of experiences that I didn't have when I was younger. And part of that was I was raised in a very kind of conservative um, uh, religious context, and I wasn't exposed to a lot of people of different faiths or different uh -huh. traditions or different backgrounds. And I think that I've seen as I've grown older and had more exposure to lots of different traditions, lots of different cultures, lots of different backgrounds, the many and interesting ways in which that can really enrich your life. And so that's uh -huh. something that I want for other people, and for particularly for young people as they're starting to make sense of their lives and they're going out, to just really understand that there are a lot of different options you know you don't just have to do what sounds good on paper can i ask you if you don't mind exploring that this um if you don't want to it's fine were there some advantages to that growing up in a very safe um, without um, having to explore any kind of questions just being shown what to do is there some advantages to that do you think I think it really depends on the individual. You know, my, my we always talk about a lot the of the people. But I'm just interested to know. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a lot of the people that I. 
a lot of the people that um, that I grew up with, I think for them, for for many of them, I think it it made a lot of sense. It it, it made life a little bit easier um, because they weren't having to make difficult decisions or weren't having to kind of um, process complicated sort of riddles or puzzles. You yeah. know, they kind of yeah. they were just kind of handed the answer. And so I think that could be perceived as a, as a benefit. Uh, but for someone like me, look from the word go, I was always sort of wanting to know why. I was always wanting to know what was behind the curtain. And yes. so for me, it just really was terrible. Was never work. You couldn't have done anything worse <laughs> well, than to tell scientist. me not to ask the question. You know, yes. like, um, and so that, the kind of idea of saying, stop asking difficult questions, yes. like that just made me all the more stubborn Curious. about wanting to ask questions questions, you know, and sort of wanting to know the answer. Because I always thought, if they don't want me to ask, there must be a really interesting answer. Yes. <laughs> and that's advice, honestly, that I give to um, teachers all the time and, and educators all the time is don't tell kids not to ask questions, you know, because they, they may actually assume that there's some really interesting answer behind the reason you're saying don't do it, when in fact, the answer is probably just something really simple. You know, and, and you can't be bothered to tell them the, the really simple rules, which is probably just you can't be bothered. Yes. Um, so I feel like at the end of the day, sort of just just go the extra mile and say, you know what? The reason we don't do it is because we've never done it. And yes. that's it. There is no reason, you know, because yes. the kid's not going to ask any more questions after that. Like, All right, fine, whatever. You know, like yeah. when I tell my son, well, we don't do this because daddy doesn't like that. You know, like yeah. that's good enough. But if I yeah. were to tell him, well, we don't ask those kinds of questions, like I, I can tell you. For 100% certain, he will continue to ask <laughs> yes. questions. Um, and now I know why you're a scientist. Um, so can you tell me um, or the, and the audience, what is the most shocking thing you discovered as a scientist? That you were completely blown away I think I've discovered many shocking by. things. But I think, you know, the, I mean, they're, they're, one of the things I think that sort of shocked me the most really was just this the fact that sort of science doesn't, isn't as definitive as one would like it to be. You know, I think when I sort of started training, um, I thought, you know, I would run experiments and I would get very clear answers and yes. that would help me to resolve all these great mysteries. Um, and, you know, what I've realized over time is that for every experiment I do well, you know, whenever, for every one question I answer, about 10 more pop up. Um, and so, you know, I had this idea, I think, you know, early on in life that kind of science would give me all these answers when in reality, I think to my mind, what science does is it helps you to ask questions well, um, and you don't always necessarily get great answers and you don't always necessarily get the answers you want, but I think it is a really valuable skill and just sort of under, you know, learning how to ask questions and learning how to probe things in the world. And what's your feeling about how neuroscience, genomics and brain imaging have transformed our understanding of the brain and behavior what's your i think they've that? done quite a lot in in a quite an uh, in, in, in an incredibly um impressive and fascinating way in a very short period of time um i think they still have a lot to do we still got a big ways to go in terms of our methods um in terms of sort of being rigorous and as you said you know there's a lot of things happening now with respect to sort of best practices in science and i think we're starting to have a good hard look at um, the issues around sort of the race to publish something sexy and exciting and oh, yeah, the need to yeah. kind of get more money. And I think until we really resolve those issues or find a way around that, I think that there's always going to be issues with us sort of sensationalizing certain findings. Um, but I think despite that, I mean, I think our understanding of how people work and our understanding of how people engage with others and sort of are in the world is just fundamentally different to what it was, yeah. you know, even 20, 30 years ago. And I think, you know, 
I mean, even 10 years ago, I think yes. so. I mean, to me, it's really amazing that, I mean, when I started my undergraduate degree, um, there was this idea sort of that you were born with all the neurons that you'd ever have. And that changed in the context of my studies. You know, so the, the really fascinating thing to me, particularly in the fields of psychology and neuroscience, is that literally we're throwing out half of the textbooks within periods of five to 10 years. We're learning so much at such a fast pace. And I think that sometimes to the public, there's a sense of, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing in science. You know, you tell us one thing and then you tell us yeah. another thing. And I think as scientists, we could do a better job just to embrace that and say, yeah, you know what, we're learning so quickly and we're learning so much so quickly. It's hard for us to keep up. Yeah, it's hard for us to so. keep up with sort of all the changes that have happened with, with what we know about the human body, the brain, how people interact, um, what makes sense for people in the world. And it's a really exciting time to be alive in the sense that we are learning so much. Absolutely. And think of pre-1953, you know, before the crystal structure of DNA. Think of what all the experiments that were hundreds and thousands of experiments before that crystallization of the 3D structure of DNA. And what a, like a scientist at ANU who I loved said to me, Selena, we're just all cogs in a wheel. And one day, and what, then one time the wheel just really turns over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like there's a part of me that thinks, you know, uh, and I tell this to, to students that I supervise, you know, that a, a big element of science is failing well. You know, most of the time what we do doesn't work out. And if we if we design our experiments well enough, we fail in a way that gives us some insight. And as you said, sort of it's so it's it's these tiny little failures over and over again. And eventually it works. You know, it's kind of like um, I had a physics teacher when I was quite young tell me about planes. Um, and, and particularly what they told me was that planes and the fact that they fly still freaks a lot of physicists out because most of the time in physics we have equations and explanations for things and they don't work you know when we actually try to make them work in the world it doesn't actually happen because we still miss things so the fact that planes actually fly is still shocking and i think it's a wonderful way of actually saying that you know we have all of these explanations we have all these equations that ought to make sense um, but a lot of the time they don't actually work and then there's that sort of one time out of a hundred where it does and we stand back and go oh my god you know like the world is a totally different place now and i think there have been these key pivotal moments in, in science where things like that have happened and and you know understanding the structure of dna is one example and everything after that is just different you know now we know a, a totally different thing about how things work in the body or the the, the time that we you know the first time that we learned that actually you can grow new brain cells as an adult you know all of a sudden now you know orthodoxy everything that we thought we knew about the brain is different and so it just takes one kind of key seminal study for everything to be turned on its head but underneath that key seminal that study ideas. is just heaps and heaps and heaps Hundreds of people of trying and failing yeah and also to get that idea through this really big fight oh it's, it's huge. always there's always 49 percent 51 percent one says no, yes. the other says yes, and it's a And fight. in fact, you know, look, there's fascinating studies um, uh, showing, looking at sort of how science progresses. And, and one of my favorite papers talks about how science advances um, one funeral at a time. And there's this idea sort <laughs> yes. of that, you know, so a lot true. of what's happening in science is that, you know, people that have won Nobel Prizes yes. or sort of are, are uh -huh. extremely established, they're, they're not prepared to let go of their idea. And it's not until, unfortunately, they sort of either move aside or they actually give voice to a newer 
third generation, that science can actually start to change and we can recognize that was a great start. It was a brilliant explanation for that thing, you know, based on the knowledge that we had 50 years ago, but we have a lot more information now and we actually have to reconsider things. Yeah, I really feel like that's really happening in the spaces of people learning about their brain. Absolutely. And I think I think we're I, I like to think we're getting better at the kind of stepping aside and elevating younger generations. Maybe I I'm just so. overly we're optimistic, trying. but I think it's starting to happen. So because you've got to go, um, can you just give a little bit of advice to to young people listening? Um, you know, would you like to give some advice about living a good life or some cheat codes? We like to call it. That's what Kurt Fanley calls it. The cheat codes, we then have to go through everything we went through. What's some things that, some obstacles you could avoid to speed up things? Like, is there a way that they could come in? You know, in your center, you're allowing um, interactions with people that might be interested in doing what you do, for example, or, you know, is there an opportunity for them to engage with you or, you know, something like that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one, so on on the kind of latter point, I think, you know, um, for, for younger people out there, if they're interested in pursuing a particular field and, and they sort of, they, there's a notable person, a scientist, an academic, I mean, the reality in my experience, and certainly this is the way I feel, whenever somebody emails me, so I get, uh, you know, I, I, once in a while I'll get sort of a, a school or a group of yeah. high school students that they'd like to come and visit me and chat to me. I, I'm thrilled. Like, I love it when young people want to come and chat. Like, it's such a fun, exciting, different thing for me. And so I think if, if you're thinking, oh, it'd be really cool to talk talk to that big important scientist but you're like oh i'm sure they couldn't possibly be willing to talk to me just send them an email like yeah. i bet you know nine times out of ten i bet they'll respond and welcome you um, and i had that experience myself you know which is people welcomed me to, to meet with them when i was quite young um so i think that just put yourself out there and sort of you know if, if they don't reply i mean the other thing i would say is if they don't reply email them again <laughs> you know yes. i think the reality sort of is there's a sense of we should be polite and Squeaky sit wheel. back and i think you know nothing interesting happens unless you're a little bit pushy um <laughs> But the other thing I would say in general is just, I think, don't be afraid to sort of to try and fail. You know, I think that that's a lesson I learned the hard way, which is, I think, that um, I was afraid to try things because I thought I would fail at them. And I think it's really important to note that, well, learning is all about failing. And if you're not failing, then then you're not trying hard enough and you're not trying new things. And the only way I think you really find out what you really like and what really works for you and what really makes sense for you in your life and in the world is to try lots of different things and have lots of different experiences. Um, and so I think it's really important, particularly for young people, to, to go out there and sort of explore and, and particularly not to assume that they have to follow a straight line. You know, take a little bit of time off and go and do something totally different and see what it's like. And for the parents maybe listening or thinking along with them, you know, and try to give them that space. I know it's terrifying, but try to give them that space if they want to try and be a, a hairdresser for a little while, let them do it. You know, um, it, it may be the thing that really turns their life around and makes it all make sense for them. Well, Nick, thank you so much, Nicholas. Thank you so much for being the inaugural director of this new great uh, center and opportunity for us to try and get better evidence around all these things. I think it's really important, especially as we try and move these things to children. That, that for me is really a bit scary. Um, uh, I, w- I just want you to um, offer maybe the audience one technique or tool that you give your your patients and people that you look at, like over your time in practice. Is there something that you've always found to be really useful for people to hear? 
Um, well, I think one thing that actually works really well in terms of sort of mindfulness meditation kind of type practices is a very simple practice that sort of is, is essentially walking meditation. Um, and it's probably one of the easiest things for most people to do just because it's not complicated. You don't need a lot of space. You can do it anywhere. Um, and literally the idea is very simply, you know, pick a space. It should be quiet if, if, if possible. If not, that's fine too. Um, but basically the idea is walk and not try to go anywhere. So literally it's just pick the space, probably about the size of a yoga mat, and literally just walk incredibly slowly back and forth around that space and pay attention to the sensations of your feet touching the ground, like every single sensation in as much detail as you can. And there's something really powerful and interesting about this experience. Um, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful practice if you can do it in a garden or outside, particularly on a sunny day. Um, but even just inside, it's, it's the kind of thing where we just pay so little attention to what our bodies are doing when we walk. And it can provide these amazing insights into how capable and skilled our bodies and our brains are without us being part of the process. Because the minute you become aware of the fact that you're walking, it becomes really awkward and uncomfortable. Yeah. And you go, oh my God, I forgot how to walk. Um, but as you just let yourself keep doing it, there's all these sensations. There's this rich world that you're ignoring for most of your lives and most of your experience. And all of a sudden you go, wow, there's all these things going on that I now have access to. And it's this one little simple thing that you can do that just slows you down um, and allows you to stop. And, and the other real reason that I like it is because how often do we actually walk or do anything for the purpose of not doing anything? And so I love the fact that you're walking not to get anywhere, but just to walk, you know, and I think there's something quite useful in that of going, you know, everything we do has to have a meaning or a purpose. Do one thing in your life that's just for the sake of doing the thing. And, and it's, it's quite a transformative thing to do. And sounds like you're activating the fine motor neurons too, and all your motor cortex and balance. Oh yeah, I mean you're exercising all kinds of. Yeah, wow. Thank you for that, and thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us today. Um, I think there's so much more we could cover. We only really scratched the surface. We really, really did. So, because um, I know your background, and we have so many overlapping interests, but for our audience today and for your time, we really appreciate it, and we really wish you great luck. Um, with the center and we really look forward to seeing how what unfolds and um, learning what we should do and shouldn't do so thank you associate professor nicholas van dam that was absolutely my pleasure <laughs>